right, good morning, everybody. Um, I'll do a few checks here on, there, sound came up. I guess you guys enjoyed your study of Revelations and have made it all the way to chapter 18, right? Right? No, we skipped, I guess, a few. Um, you guys skipped some good stuff, but the really neat thing is that I, well, I, I, two things. I got to open up, I think, the, the first study of Revelation, the first introduction, and I really enjoyed that. I got to talk about, um, about who Jesus Christ is, what his presentation was, and what the theme of the whole book was, which is basically Jesus Christ is the king and he's coming again. And guess what? I just jump right ahead to the same thing again, except that this is the real thing. This is the coming of Christ. It'll be within the chapter of, that we're studying, but it'll be the next installment. The first installment is, we're only going to get to verse 10. So open your Bibles, Revelation 19, verse 1 to 10, and uh, we will have to actually do the reading ourselves um, for, this, for some of this portion. But the point of this passage is Jesus is coming. He's the king. And the other point is God is on the throne, and we're going to see that again. Some of what you guys saw in Revelation chapter 5, I believe, was our last study. I wasn't here, so I'm, I'm guessing it was 5, right? So Revelation 5, you got to see the king on the throne, the lamb who was worthy to take the scroll, and you didn't get to see what, the, what was in the scroll. That's all right. You get to read it at home on your own. That's just par for the course. Um, this will be an interesting passage today, and let's uh, give it a little, a little read here. We'll get us started. Let me see if this works. Cool. We're going to start right about here. Uh, verse, chapter 19, verse 1 says, After these things, I heard, as it were, a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice uh, came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and of the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, hallelujah for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. And I broke the passage right there. Other versions of the Bible choose a little different um, break apart of this passage. But a couple of things. We got to see what we've missed because that opens up with this thought after these things, something just finished. Something just came to an end. Um, we are in the end times as, as a whole for this passage, but now we've come to the end of the end and we're at another, uh, at another point of transition here. So what did we miss? Um, a little bit of review. We just missed seven years 
Let me see if this works again. We missed seven years of the Antichrist, which you're glad you missed it, right? Um, we've skipped ahead to this portion, but seven years of the Antichrist. And we're in really funny, tricky times right now with something we have in our lifetimes, none of us has experienced a pandemic, something global, something that just kind of, we're still confused what side of the, what, do we wear masks or not? We're still confused about that. You know, well, I'd never wear a mask. Oh, we should always, we don't know what to do. We're all twisted around. We can't figure it out yet. And there's no really right or wrong on that. But seven years of this. Seven years of worldwide confusion, a world leader that takes power over everything, and guess what? He's not a really friendly guy to Christians. In fact, at the end of the church period, uh, in the seven churches as we studied them, you can kind of foresee the rapture of the church. The church is gone. But during the tribulation, you have new believers, people who come through the reading of Scripture, through the testimony that they remember from us, and they're going to come to Christ, and they're going to learn who Christ really is, and that that's not the right Christ. He's the Antichrist. And they're going to say, just a minute, things aren't adding up. And they're going to read uh, chapters seven, uh, 6 through 18 and say, oh, that's what's happening. And it's, it's going to make a lot more sense to them than it makes to us right now. As things unfold, as history starts playing out these words of prophecy right in front of their eyes. And they're just going to be waking up one after the other. Coming to Christ, coming to the God of Scripture, accepting the work of Jesus Christ as their Savior, as we have. But they're going to be in another category. They're going to be what you might call the tribulation saints. Because the church is already together, gone to be with Christ. Has been raptured, transformed, and that those are the prophecies that we have in Thessalonians, that we have in Corinthians, and also foreshadowed in the last few churches that we studied within chapter 3 of Revelation. So, pretty cool stuff developing, pretty neat stuff developing, pretty scary stuff. There's a lot of persecution of these believers. The Antichrist is fiercely against these Christians who have sprung up who have come up to challenge his authority, his leadership. As he tries to unite nations around him, there's this group that is, that is standing up to him, and it really bothers him. So there's a lot of persecution. There's a lot of scary things going on. And then you have this war sort of developing. As God challenges this earthly ruler, this usurper of the throne who thinks he's the big guy, who thinks he can rule the world, and God begins to challenge him with plagues, crazy natural events, crazy earthquakes, uh, fires, great destruction, uh, seems like meteors, falling stars, all sorts of things that come and challenge this Antichrist um, and his world government. And a clear war develops between the earthly ruler and the God of heaven. Who's going to win? And this challenge goes on for seven years. For the re well, at least for the last three and a half years, it becomes very evident. And that's called the portion of the Great Tribulation. So there's a real evident uh, tearing apart between heaven and earth. Who is it? Who is it? And at the end of that time, and you've just missed it, it's, verses, it's chapter 17 and 18, 
you see the destruction of Babylon. And Babylon is speech term for what is the world system. First off, you have the religious world system. The religious world system, the anti-Christ system of worshiping this man rather than worshiping God. And they actually took all the world religions and just kind of mucked them all together, shoved them all together, and said, we now have one person that's not God. We're worshiping this antichrist. And you have a false prophet there preaching, making. There's miracles. There's all sorts of weird stuff going on. But they're pushing everybody to worship this man. And God challenges that, and he destroys that. And what God calls it, he says, this is a a system of belief that, well, let me put it this way. We were commanded to love the Lord your God with all your heart, right? And yet now the world has chosen to love this imposter system. So God calls this worship system the great harlot. It's an imposter. It's it's a false love. You're not loving the right person because worship is loving God. That's what worship is all about. So God challenges that, destroys that, and actually is destroyed at the hand of the very political systems that have created it. Really interesting how that comes down. Immediately after chapter 18, and you just missed this, is the crash of Babylon, the empire. The political economical system, the commercial system, the world leaders, and it's all going to come crashing down. And it's talked about in chapter 18, but we're going to see the execution of it starting in the middle of this chapter. So that's going to, we're going to see just how those tie together throughout this next chapter, because the coming of the king is the destruction of the world system called Babylon. So twice Babylon is referenced, one in a spiritual sense and the other in a political economic sense, if that can come together. So there's this war. There's the heavenly and the earthly, and there's a battle, and this is the climax of the book of Revelations right here. It comes to a head. This is the big boom, all right? Chapter 19 then says, after these things, in heaven there is worship. There's four main hallelujahs that erupt. Four times, there's this eruption of wonderful, amazing, Look at who God is. Look at what he's done. And I'll give you the, the blow by blow here. Um, the first hallelujah, and I had just read it, salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants on her. Okay, so this is our first eruption of worship, of hallelujah, of praise to God who is on the throne. Who won the battle between heaven and earth? God won. God wins in the end. And that's why we have this hallelujah. And he is won against the earthly governments, against this set of Babylon governments um, that are challenging heaven. Uh, So justice is finally served to a rebellious world. And that's what the hallelujah is about. The thing that we might not realize as we go through 
the previous chapters is we have believers in heaven who have come out of the tribulation, believers in Jesus Christ. Not part of the church, that already happened, but believers in Jesus Christ who have been martyred, slaughtered, hunted down, persecuted, and they're stacking up souls of people who were martyred on earth by this wicked system. They're stacking up in heaven, and they're saying, when do we get justice? So the great cry of hallelujah is salvation, proper judgment as it deserves was handed out to the religious and the political Babylons of the world. Avenge the blood of the believers. We've avenged the blood. God is a God who takes on vengeance on our behalf, on behalf of those who believe in him. And again, you, met, you saw that the harlot is destroyed. Interesting choice of words, the harlot. Um, we don't like to talk about harlots in church, okay? That's kind of embarrassing. We don't do that. Um, the harlot is in contrast to the bride. The harlot is in contrast to the true love. And, and as, as, you know, if you're going to go and pay for love and pay for, that's just kind of gross and embarrassing, don't you think? What kind of love is that? It's, it's, a, it's a setup. It's not right. It's a cheap shot at love. It's a cheap shot, shot at worship. And here we have God calling out Babylon as a false bride, an imposter, a false worship, a false system. And so he uses the term the harlot, and there's, there's quite a picturesque description of that previously. So this is just a review of what has already been brought up in Scripture. So the religious Babylon goes down and there's a big hallelujah in heaven. The religious system, the harlot, goes down, crash and burn, and everyone praises God. Now we get a second hallelujah, starting there in verse 3. And a second time, uh, they said hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And this is another point of worship in verse 3. Another hallelujah, another eruption. Here we go looking from heaven, looking down, and watching the earth burning up. And you say, wow, that's an ugly picture. It is, it is. But as you see in the previous chapter, um, in chapter 18, Babylon has fallen. This is the political Babylon. And it crashes and burns. And it goes as a burning rock into the middle of the oceans and explosion of steam. It's a crash and burn situation of the political system. And again, it's evident from heaven, and there's a, there's a lot of, of uh, joy. The political system crashes and burns in contrast to Israel. Israel is going to be the kingdom that God is going to establish as the political end of God's kingdom on earth. He's going to retake Israel and begin his Israel project again at this time because the king is returning. And it's the king of the world, but it's the king of Israel. Jesus is the king of Israel. And he's returning, and he's going to take ownership of this, and he's going to begin once again to straighten the mess out, politically speaking. 
So the king is returning. Not only is God returning, the one worthy of worship, but politically, the king is returning. So there's a big hallelujah here. This is a quote in part from Isaiah 34, 2, and I'm going to go ahead and find that. Um, Isaiah 34, verse 2 says, For the Lord's indignation is against all the nations, and his wrath against all their armies. He has utterly destroyed them. He has, even, uh, he has given them over to slaughter. And let me skip up to verse 10, 34 verse 10. It shall not be quenched night or day. Its smoke shall go up forever from generation to generation. It shall be desolate. None shall pass through it forever and ever. So part of what it says here in Revelation 19.4 is it, her, uh, 3, I'm sorry. Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. And it's an echo of this passage when God finally sets the nations where they belong, crushes the opposition and says, we have a king, a real king, the rightful king who was rejected once and crucified, but raised again and come back to take his place where he belongs. So we have a big hallelujah in heaven, and it's primarily um, the king of Israel has returned, and he will be the king of the world. He will rule all. We have a third hallelujah, and this time we have a scene in heaven taken right out of chapter, what was it? Four or five? Yeah. We had chapter four and five where we have the elders falling down. We have the four living creatures falling down. We have this, this heavenly scene of worship around a crystal sea and a and a throne in the middle, and then you see God, and then you see a, a lamb, and then you kind of great pictures in, in, in chapters 4 and 5, right, of Revelation, um, as you see these, these pictures. Praise around the throne of God. Verse 4 then says, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, amen, hallelujah. What a great... What a great time to praise God. God is on the throne. The creator of the world is restoring things to its rightful place. Things are going back to what they always were meant to be. Not what was before, but what it was designed to be, what it maybe never quite achieved. And God is, is praised. The 24 elders, again, they're seen in chapter 4, worshiping. And I don't know how much discussion went on about this, but there's various interpretations on the 24 elders. See, there's 12 tribes of Israel, and there's 12 disciples of Christ, and you kind of wonder, well, what's this all about? And it seems to be a picture of the work of God among men. So Israel and the church and those who have been redeemed by, um, by the work of Christ by the work of God throughout the Old Testament. It's the redeemed of the Lord uh, represented in these 24 elders. And the four living creatures, boy, that's a hard one. Some kind of angels, some kind of uh, spectacular angels created for God's glory and to protect, it seems, His holiness. It seems like their primary uh, purpose is to, is to is not, maybe they're not protecting it, but they're proclaiming it all the time. 
the holiness of God. And that is their, their primary charter. They're the guardians of the holiness of God. So this is a scene right out of heaven. And what's cool is that the fourth hallelujah is an echo. So this hallelujah comes out of heaven as a right from the throne of God. It's a big call to worship, a big hurrah from heaven. And it is responded to from the earth. So you get the fourth hallelujah coming up and says, um, there we go. Amen, hallelujah, say the, say the elders from the throne of God. Verse 5, and a voice came from the throne saying, give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. So there's a command to worship. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude and as the sound of many waters, and as the sounds of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God reigns. And we have the echo from God's world, from God's creation, echoing Hallelujah back to the throne, coming back and responding in worship. God reigns. God is on the throne. There's a powerful, powerful response all the redeemed of the world, all of creation that accepts God as their creator responds to their creator in this invitation to worship, a powerful response. The universe responds, God is sovereign. God is on the throne. And really that's the big lesson. God is on the throne. God reigns in heaven. But in this chapter, we see that transition. God reigns in heaven, and he descends to reign on earth as well. That's why this is the climax. God reigns in heaven, undisputable. But he's going to come down. That'll be, we're going to have to wait on that until next week. We'll get a little more of that. We still have a few verses here, verses 7 to verse 9. And here's another little, uh, a little private worship going on here. Aside of the big, explosive worships, reverberations of worship, we have a little private worship going on. Verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are true words of God. The marriage of the Lamb. There's a great event, kind of quiet, kind of kept in the background. It's something that we as the church of Christ look forward to, sort of privately. This isn't for Israel. This is for the church. This is something for us. There will be others present, as you can see, but the marriage ceremony of Christ and the church. The church is called the bride. You remember Ephesians? Ephesians 5 speaks of the bride. The church is the bride of Christ, and as Christ loved the bride and gave himself for her, the church is what God is, or Christ has called out of the world for himself and for a personal, intimate, close relationship with him. And it begins, it's anticipated at this time, it begins when we see him again. When we are with him in heaven. 
when we are transformed after the, after the rapture. So there's a little mystery here. It's not all quite defined. I don't have, I don't have the invitation yet and all the ceremony procedures yet. So there's a few items that I don't quite understand, but it's coming. And it's, in the big picture, we know what's going to happen. So we're going to have to assume a few things here. Um, the garments, the dress for the bride, how does that happen? I kind of like this uh, picture on the overhead because you see all the little flags in the dress, all the different countries represented? Kind of cute. Um, it's not so much by country, but it's the good works. It's the works that God has prepared for us to, to do. And as we minister, as we serve Christ here, this is dressing up the bride. This is preparing the clothing. This is changing things, making, beautifying, beautifying the church. Um, Christ has taken away our sin. Christ has taken care of our impurity. We are, are spotless. But, but the dressing up, the dressing up, this is, our, this is our part. This is what we do as we serve, as we seek Him, as we, as we minister to one another, to the world. This is the dressing up of the bride. It's a really neat, neat idea. Um, there's, there's some thought as well, well, you know, we're all a little bit sinners, even as Christians. So what, what happens there? What about sins, maybe even unconfessed sin? So Christ has forgiven us, but our flesh is still with us until we are in glory. And then when we get there, we're going to maybe be a little embarrassed, say, boy, that didn't, we didn't do that very well. But there's also the judgment seat of Christ, where Christ takes us, puts us through the fire, purification process. We meet our, we meet the groom. We meet Christ. And he puts us through the purification fire and says, okay, all right, let's leave that behind. And then what stays with us? He says, okay, this is part of the beautification process of the bride. This is part of the the, the clothing, the, the uh, adornments, um, I don't know, pearls, necklaces, whatever you want to say, but it's all figure of speech. There's, there's a value to this that the groom can appreciate. It's not for us to look good in front of a mirror, for us to see it, but it's for the groom to appreciate as he looks at his church and he sees us. So there's something to be looked forward to here as, as the church is is transformed and glorified um, in the presence of Christ. Now, there's one more item here, and that's an invitation item. There's an invitation made to others, so not the church. Others who are also redeemed, who are also with God in heaven, with us. But there's others, and they're invited to be part of the ceremony of the feast, of, well, both the ceremony and the feast. You can kind of see two events going on together uh, in this passage. So who are they? Who are the others? That's kind of an interesting pondering question. Who might they be? And a lot have uh, pointed out, well, there's a resurrection of Old Testament saints. And it might be at the time of the church. 
It might be at the time of the coming of Christ. So there's a, there's a timing issue here. But Old Testament saints were resurrected. Daniel was promised. Um, relax, Daniel. Go the way of all people. You know, you're going to die. You're, you'll be in heaven, but not without a body. And then you will be raised again. And Isaiah has the same kind of promises given to him. And as they talk resurrection, it's a, like our transformed bodies, resurrected in body, transformed in the flesh, so that we will not be incomplete creatures of God. We will be complete, but with transformed, perfected um, bodies, as we are now soul and body, but our body's kind of a mess. And our, you know, a lot of our sinfulness and our soul is a mess, but the transformation will be complete. Old Testament saints, what about angels? Angels might be, and I think this invitation extends to heavenly beings, angels, and there's different kinds of angels, and the heavenly creation, and they're invited to be part of the wedding ceremony, the wedding of Christ and his bride. What an event. Put it on your calendar. Save the date. Don't miss this one. Isn't this going to be great? We're going to be front and center. It's going to be interesting. There's one other group that we've already mentioned, and that would be tribulation saints. People who have come to Christ during the tribula tribulation, who have been martyred by the Antichrist, who have come out of that, and as they're in heaven, and as they're with uh, God, with Christ, Asking for vengeance, they get to be part of this wonderful ceremony as well, which is Christ and the bride and the church. Um, so we have a little private reason to celebrate. It's a, maybe it's a private hallelujah. Maybe it's a private hurrah. Um, it's going to be a really neat thing, and it's not going to be that private. The whole world's going to find out about it. And the point of being the bride of Christ is that as the king comes back, to earth, And as the king comes back to take ownership of the world, the political stage in the world, the church is with him. And if you go back to Revelation chapter 1, it talks about us, the church, reigning alongside with Christ. Uh, that, that, that implies governance of some sort. So we're going to be involved in the next stages. Where Christ goes, the bride goes also. That is, that is the essence of marriage, isn't it? Where goes the groom, there goes the bride. They go together. And, and this is going to be a neat, um, a new experience, a neat experience for us as we see, um, as we come to this stage and as we learn what exactly, I don't know what exactly we're going to do there. That's going to, is a great mystery. A great mystery. I'm just looking forward to seeing Christ. I don't know what comes later, but apparently more comes later. It's going to be pretty neat. Verse 10. Verse 10, and here's a little bit of um, a little whoopsie-doo here. It's funny that these, these things get included in, in the writing of this. You know, if I was John, I probably wouldn't have skipped this one. I wouldn't have said anything. I would have been like, oh, yeah, I think I'll just not mention this. This is embarrassing. Uh, but John brings it up. John is fully transparent. This is what I saw. This is what happened. And he's going to bring this up. I wouldn't have done it. Uh, but here we go. Maybe too much pride, I guess. huh? And John says, And I fell at his feet and worshipped him. 
And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren. He's an angel who's guiding John through this tour. And John, John falls down and worships him. And the angel calls him on it, says, don't do this. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So uh, John, is, John is given a little slap on the wrist here. And we learn a few things in this mistake of John's. I can't tell you how overwhelmed or why John did this. I'm, I'm sure that as John comes to this climax moment and as he sees all these wonderful things happen, he's probably just kind of crumbling at the knees and just falling over anyways. Um, but the angel picks him up and says, we're not going to do this. Don't make any mistakes here. Keep your eye on the right objective, on the right goal. And he makes that pretty clear. But a few things we learn in the process. We learn a little bit about, um, about angels. We learn that angels are actually uh, colleagues. Angels are actually co-workers with us. And some people, I heard it once recently said that angels are lower than men. And I said, how about that? I think it's the other way around. They're of a heavenly creation. We're of an earthly creation. We're, we're different entirely. If there was ever aliens, that's angels, okay? We're different. We're so different. Entirely, not even, not even in the species-related sense. They're spiritual beings. Um, they take on the form and the appearance of flesh occasionally to serve us. But they're, in the, they're doing the same as we are. If they are angels of God, they are serving us on God's behalf. They are working with us on God's behalf. And we work with them on God's behalf. We're co-workers. And that, that's a little different. Um, if you get into a lot of this stuff, it gets mucked up because there's angels that are fallen that have rejected the authority of their creator, and they're also around there, and there's a spiritual realm out there, and it gets messy. But angels that worship God are co-workers with us. They're just working the parallel track, if you will, working the parallel track with us. So we learn this, and it's kind of neat. It's kind of neat to see this. Um, we get the we get this phrase at the end of this passage and the angel speaks up and says, it's kind of cryptic the way it says it. Um, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. First he says, worship God for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. A little cryptic to understand. And I don't know enough Greek to go back and sort it all out. But what I'm getting overall is that Jesus is the essence of the message. Prophecy, the message of God. God speaking to mankind in any way that he did it. There's one message, a central message, and it's worth all of our attention and it's worthy of our worship. Worship God. The message is about Jesus. Don't get confused. Don't get sidelined. Don't get sidetracked. Don't Start thinking angels, this and spiritual creatures here. Don't get sidetracked. It's about Jesus. And he puts this out in a rather cryptic way, but I think that's the message overall. So as a negative, that becomes 
a warning. That becomes a warning towards idolatry of any sort. And boy, we can fall for idolatry easy. So as this passage speaks of worship, we see this, this warning included saying, oh yes, but don't fall for idolatry. Boy, we just got rid of, we're, we're just going to get rid of the Antichrist in the next section. He was setting himself up against God to be like God, to challenge the worship that we give. Uh, but even today, we have so many ways that challenge our worship of God, that get in the way, that distract, that take the place of God. And we've got to be very aware of idolatry. The final words of 1 John, again, same author, final words of 1 John is, beware of idolatry. Be careful with idolatry. Where did that come from? It's just so easy, so evident. We've got to be on our guard. We've got to keep the focus where it belongs. And as the church of Christ, as the bride of Christ awaiting the groom, our focus has got to be on Christ, on the groom, on who he is and on his return and on our joining him and returning with him to earth. So the danger of idolatry, what a problem in John's time what a problem in this prophetic passage from then all the way to the other side, idolatry is with us. Idolatry is a challenge. Um, it's the great delusions that are out there that want to take us away uh, from, from what God is doing. The message is clear. God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of all the hallelujah we can, we can put out. Um, we're going to see this. We're going to be with him. This is going to be an awesome time for us. It's going to be, it's going to come at the end of a terrible time in the world, a challenging time on earth when people are going to have to suffer through this great delusion of an antichrist and choose life or death, life with the antichrist or death and life with God in eternity. It's going to be a terrible choice. It's going to be a, a terrible time on earth. But God is on the throne. He's the only one that's worthy of worship. No matter what the delusion looks like, no matter what the choices seem to appear at the time, there's only really one person who's worthy to be worshipped, and it's our God, and it's Christ who we have to look to. So God is on the throne in heaven, and he will soon be on earth. He's coming in this passage. He's coming next to reign on earth. So again, we are talking prophecy. It's not going to happen today or tomorrow. Um, it's going to happen sometime after seven years of tribulation. And Christ will come upon the earth to reign. And we as a church will have a special place with Christ. We will return with Christ, transformed bodies, and um, confirmed united with Christ for the duration, for the rest of eternity. Our application then is to worship as we face whatever adversity comes. And no, don't forget the groom. Don't forget Christ. Keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the essence of worship. That's a powerful reminder there in that, in that passage. So let me pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for the promises it brings, for the excitement that we can see in the future. And 
the hope, the future that you have promised to us that we can look forward to. Um, pray now as we look around, as we see delusions, as we see things that distract us, as we th- see things that consume and take our time, take our energy, take money, take all sorts of resources, um, and as we have to struggle to make uh, the balance of things uh, meet here, pray that we would always keep our eye on Christ and we would always seek to serve you and seek to honor you in what we do. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.